is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today I'm going to be grilling Paul. Ouch. Do I need a lawyer? No, but possibly a travel agent, because I'm going to ask you about wine in Hungary, where it turns out oh, yeah. you just were. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, you're just upset, though, because I didn't take you. I am. I'm totally jealous. And now you're going to have to tell the entire class about the place and the trip. I'm Rick Cushman. <laughs> I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to talk about the ancient winemaking traditions of Hungary. It includes something called bull's blood. you got to love that name. We're going to tell you what to drink with goulash. We have more listener questions about wine in restaurants. And as usual, of course, we will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're visiting Hungary. Cool. Rick, I was just there. I'd love to go back. Paul, Paul, uh, it's, my point is we're going to ask you about your trip. Uh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. That's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. good. Yeah. So first really obvious question is for the rest of us who don't get to go with Mr. World Traveler, what's it like for wine travelers to go to a place like Hungary? Uh, pretty unusual in a couple of ways. Number one is, you know, we think of wine country as Napa Valley, full of wineries with right. tasting rooms and all that. First yeah. of all, it's Hungarian, so nobody speaks the language. I mean, the Hungarians do, but none of us did. And you're looking <laughs> well, at it. Good for them, though. Yeah, Otherwise, well, it'd yeah, really be a problem, it really Or right? nobody would understand <laughs> what they were saying. Um, uh, really complicated language, so you're really, to a certain extent, um, trying to figure out what goes on. For example, wine in most countries in the world, vine, vino, van, wine, yayan. In Hungary, boar. Ah, you know, we've been called that. Yes, but for different reasons. Yes. Yeah. So completely strange alphabet sort of sort of construction of right. words. They mm. even introduced themselves uh, last names first. So you're Cushman Rick in Hungary. Hmm? So that's odd. And then we're used to the idea of driving into wine country and saying big signs, visit this winery, visit right. that winery and all this. The wine country where I was, which is Tokoy, was really not very developed in terms of tourism. I mean, you could find your way around if you kind of knew where to look. But it was pretty rustic. It was th two and a half hours from Budapest, which is the capital. And what they told me was it was the most distant, rural, rustic, poorest section of Hungary. Pretty different than, we, you know, we imagine the Napa Valley is this beautiful lifestyle kind yeah, of destination. Yeah, no kidding. Cause, uh, and, and other countries, the, the countries of Europe that I've been, the yeah, wine country always— Champagne. Yeah, they always yeah, have— a sense of, you know, uh, uh, luxury almost about them. Right, yeah. right. And no luxury here. Although right. we did visit a farm that was raising pigs and sheep, and it was just like a pig and sheep farm here. It was pretty rustic. Yeah, well. Yeah. So uh, I was going to joke, and we're going to actually do a goulash pairing later, but I cool. was going to joke about, oh, and did you eat goulash? But apparently the answer is a lot. Well, um, in fact, it's sort of a funny story because when I got there, we stopped for lunch the first First restaurant we stopped for, we were going to have some lunch, and I look on the menu, and one of the things on the menu is goulash, and I think, I'm in Hungary. i got to go goulash. That's right. right. So I ordered the goulash, and first big surprise, goulash is not a rich, hearty stew in Hungary. Oh. Goulash is, in fact, a sort of clear broth oh. with chunks of beef, potato, carrots, and onions chopped up in it. So it's more like chicken soup with beef than it wow. is like a stew. Wouldn't it be beef soup with beef? It would be more like, yes, but then it wouldn't <laughs> be like chicken soup with beef. Then it would be beef soup, and that would be completely different, yeah. right? So that was unusual. And then the first night, we went to a local hotel where we were staying, and they hosted us for dinner. And they told us with great delight that they had prepared a special local menu just for us. And the one of the things we were going to start with was Gotta goulash. Got to be goulash, right? Yeah. 
Next day, go out to lunch. Guess what they served us for lunch? <laughs> I, I can see a pattern. Okay. Yes, it was. Three of the first four meals I ate had goulash All in right. it. All right. And you know what? It was good, but it wasn't It wasn't good enough to eat three times in a row. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so, and you also went to some uh, really cool cafe, I understand. Well, it was very funny because when we left the airport, we're driving. It, we've got a two-and-a-half-hour drive up to the wine region out of Budapest, and our driver who spoke very good English and was our guide for most of the trip. He turns to me and says, I got to get a cup of coffee. It's, you know, it's the middle of the afternoon. Of course, we'd been awake all night on airplanes. We didn't need coffee. We were happy to sleep in the car, but right. he wanted to get a cup of coffee. So we pulled right into the what he described as the best place to get coffee on the way to the wine country. It was a McCafe. Which is their McDonald's? No, no. It was complete with the golden arches. It was, in fact, a McDonald's McCafe coffee shop. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I, I couldn't resist. I took a picture of McDonald's in Hungary, and everything about the sign except the Golden Arches is in Hungarian. Do they have goulash on the menu? I don't remember. A, a goulash between buns or a something? A goulash between <laughs> buns. <laughs> right. So I, I have to say, other than one or two grapes that I know about, I don't really know what they make in, in Hungary. Are, do they right. make the mainstream European grapes, grapes that we know, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, They that may, sort of thing? but the, the most famous wines, I mean, they make an inexpensive red wine, which you referred to in the introduction, Egri Bakfer, yeah. which is Bulls That one blood. I know about. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, we'll you know, it's an that, inexpensive yeah. wine. It's kind of a folk wine. The wine that they make that is absolutely world-class, the, there's a dessert version of it called Tokai, Tokoi. Um, and then there's a, uh, the dry wine version is called Furmint, F-U-R-M-I-N-T. That's the name of the grape. Is Furmint is the name of the grape. And then if they make it into a sweet wine, they call it Tokai Asu. Um, um, although they also have a late harvest version called Shmuradni. Uh, which I was traveling with a couple of sommeliers, and one of them just started calling it. It's too complicated. He says, we're just going to call it Sweet Rodney. <laughs> I Sweet like that. Sweet Rodney. See, that's, that's the way. Those are the kind of songs we like. Well, <laughs> uh, so it's wild here. You know, they make a dry wine. The grapes are, uh, they make a beautiful dry white wine called Furmint. Uh, if you get a chance to taste it, it's delicious. It's dry. It's crisp. It's a little bit like Pinot Grigio, but it has a little more character, I think, more more aromatics. Beautiful, balanced, lovely wine. It is. And it's something to remember because, you know, we we, we tried uh, sometimes the too cool for school wine lists. Yes. But in, in places like San Francisco and L.A. You'll see and this wine on the list. It. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then here's the weird part. You know, there are lots of ways to make a dessert wine. I've never, I don't know another region that makes a dessert wine this way. They pick, let's say, three quarters of the vineyard, and they make this delicious dry white wine. It's beautiful. It's ready to drink. They then leave the rest of the vines unpicked. They wait for this botrytis, this mold to grow on the grapes that that concentrates them, and so that you get these intense little berries with huge sugar, high acid, really intense flavors. They pick those berries one by one. So well, how is that different from the Saturns? They wait for that, but do they not well, pick? Well, but Saturn, they but, pick the whole vineyard and try to make the whole vineyard out of this. Ah, uh, gotcha. These guys yeah. pick a right. big That's chunk of the vineyard and make right. it into a dry wine. Then they add these basically 100-kilo buckets of these 
they're not raisins because they've been affected by the you know the, by the mold, so they they aren't um, oxidized the way raisins are. They add those into the dry white wine, and the dry wine sucks all the sugar flavor and acid out of those berries, and then it's pressed again. Ah. If you put in enough of those buckets, you end up with something that's really intensely sweet and delicious. Oh, interesting. Um, and that's how you make Tokai Asu. Oh. And Asu is your is your key to know that it's a really sweet, delicious mm-hmm. dessert wine. Um, but it's fascinating because in the same winery, you'll have one tank that got the berries and one tank that didn't. The tank that got the berries is this luxurious, elegant, luscious dessert wine, and right next to it is this it's bright, really, lively, crisp, dry very wine. Interesting. Pretty wild. Very interesting. So, what is the sort of the condition of the Hungarian wine industry? I mean, is it is we don't you know other than we do like I said we're talking about fr- uh, ferment, and now yeah. and then a Tokai on a really kind of a, a, a complex restaurant menu, but we don't right. see much of it in the U.S. Yeah. Do they export? Is it all internal? Not a lot of export. Uh, they're working on that. That's why we were there, as they were hoping to in- encourage more exports. But you know, I, I was asking about what was what life was like when during before the Iron Curtain fell, mm-hmm. and one of the guys said to me with a laugh, he said, "We had the perfect business arrangement." He said, "We shipped them." as much bad wine as right. we could, and they shipped us as much bad equipment as they could. It was a perfect solution. Yes, that is, that, that is actually really funny, and that is the description of, of the entire Eastern Bloc before the Iron Curtain fell, which is that So imagine that now, volume, in right. less than a generation, they're trying to bring that up to, instead of making really bad wine and shipping it around mm-hmm. the world, they're now actually trying. So most of the vineyards, which had been on hillsides where they produced the most intense flavors during the Soviet era, they'd all moved down into the flats. Well, now they're slowly working their way back up onto those slopes again. It's going to take them some time, but the wines we tasted were fabulous. The wines we tasted were delicious. Um, the people we met with were nice. I mean, I would highly recommend it. Just bring someone who speaks a little Magyar. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, because this is the thing, when you go to most of the wine regions um, in, in Europe, the major wine regions, I can attest, as a guy who barely speaks one word of anything, including English, right. I've always been able to get along. Somebody knows enough English, right. and so, but this is not a yeah. country that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, actually, the, the younger generation, mm. the younger generation speaks English. The older generation, of course, would speak Russian because that's where their business was. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Pretty interesting. Um, and we were there in the fall. Uh, the f- colors were turning. I mean, it's they, they talk about the steppes of Hungary, this huge Hungarian plain, and you could all you had to do is get up a little bit, and you could see for miles and miles across beautiful green hills, rolling, rolling flat, sort of undulating plain with lots of trees turning color and tiny little villages with little churches. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Well, I am sold. And, okay, let's and, go. Uh, let's go. We are on the way. We'll be back. Uh, yeah, a couple of weeks. Show, yeah. right, a couple of weeks. All right. Or we could uh, <laughs> move right on to, uh, as we always do about this point, time to take a few questions. Cool. This is Ball Talk with Rick and Ball. Questions coming right up. listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it's time to take questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Look for us on iTunes, and you can, of course, subscribe for free, just one little click. There is, however, one risk uh, if you ask us a question. It's a pretty fair chance we're going to mangle your name. Yes. We have done that a couple shows ago. <laughs> we really did that because we spent some time answering a good question about wine pricing in restaurants from a loyal listener in Chicago named Anthony Virial, except his name is not 
his name is Andrew, not Anthony. We you just, sure you got that right? Uh, Rick? We, it's Andrew. Uh, however, <laughs> I emailed him. We let him know that we had messed up and uh, that we you know, that we had given him the Rick and Paul treatment fundamentally. That's right. <laughs> and he said, "This is his email back. That's okay about the name mix up." If you can believe it, even my own mom has confused me and called me Anthony in time or two. So there you have it. Nice guy in Chicago, Andrew Virel. Thank you, Andrew. And to be fair, my mom used to do the same thing. I got called my brother's name my whole life. So <laughs> I understand where Andrew's coming from on right. that one. Well, yes, anyway, we appreciate your patience. And Thank if, you, Andrew. Uh, if anyone is new to us and might want to know what call of us to answer uh, questions and mangle people's names. Well, I think we have been mangling names now for more than a year. We have plenty of experience. And information, And too. information, We're pretty good too. at mangling a lot of things. Right. Paul, however, is a respected industry when he's not mangling people's names. <laughs> he answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches at Napa Valley College at the Culinary Institute of America around the world and sometimes in places like Hungary. And Rick, a respected industry veteran who consults with restaurants, consults with wineries, has written a couple of books, one of which made the New York Times bestseller list on wine and uh, is also the wine journalist for Capital Public Radio right here in lovely Sacramento. The lovely folks who let us borrow their studios, and we appreciate that. Our first question comes from Scott B. in Sacramento. Scott's right. a loyal listener, but he's not he's smart enough not to give us his last name. Well, and he's right here local. And he's That's local. Right. He That's can right. hit us with a rock, so, so we better be careful. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, we should be nice to him. I'm pretty sure his name is Scott. <laughs> you can't mangle Scott, Rick. Yes, that's true. So he had a question, and Paul, there's also some important information in his email, and so I think I should read it. He said, recently my folks visited from L.A. We took a trip to Napa. They're big wine drinkers. Myself, I'm still learning, which is why I enjoy listening to your show. Because if he knew anything. Yeah, he would know that we were mangling information. <laughs> and by the way, we listened to your show on the drive over and back, and I must say it made for a great tasting day. It probably got us thinking about this question. Cool. I mean, do we recommend driving and listening to us? Isn't that like, isn't it's that dangerous. against the state law at yes. some point in some states? Well, I, I like to believe it's that the laughter could is the danger. The laughter is the danger. Uh, yes. With us be, or at us? Well, either way, but it <laughs> still could be dangerous. All right. Here, so here's Scott's question. It's my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, that a bottle says Cabernet, if a bottle says Cabernet or any other grape, on the label, by law, the, the, mine, the wine must be 75% Cab or whatever grape variety. Right. And, right. and yes, Scott, you're right. Yes, 75% of the grape. Yes. So why don't we get to know what makes up the rest of the 25%? We asked the folks at one of the wineries, name removed so I don't get sued. See, you know Scott's See, been listening he's been to listening. us. He knows, That's he, right. knows, he knows how to duck these things. And they said, no one will ever tell you what other grapes are in there, even just in conversation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. So he says, is this is this the winemaker's secret? Is, there also, is this also why separate wines made from the same vineyard can taste so different? I guess I'd like to know how much winemakers mess around with that 25%, if at all, to achieve their final product. And if they're messing around with it, why don't they put it on their labels? Well, it's a really good question. And like everything in the world of wine, um, there's no answer for it. Because some wineries actually do make almost 100% varietal wine. Right. Um, and some actually promote the fact that our wines are 100% varietal, and others frequently blend in other things. Again, as long as they don't go over 25%, uh, it's legal to put in pretty much anything they want. <clears throat> and, um, and some do, however, let you know. Well, uh, I was going to say, you know, one of the, one of the to me, one of the classic wineries of, of California is Ridge Vineyards, and they are always very careful about putting what's in each bottle. Yeah. Um, so some wineries tell you, other wineries don't blend, 
And the third category is obviously where Scott asked his question, which is they blend a little bit in and they don't tell you because they want... One of the reasons you wouldn't tell people is if you made a Cabernet and you made it, let's say, 87% Cabernet, and you put in 13% Merlot in 2012. In 2013, eh, the Cabernet didn't get quite so ripe. You'd like to add in a little bit of... You don't want people coming into the tasting room every year saying, look, I really like that year, and now you've changed it, so I'm now I'm not going to like it. What the winemaker wants to do is say, try my wine. If you like the wine, try it the next year. See if I haven't done a pretty good job of continuing that style, even though it may have a little more of this and a little less of that. My goal is to make a, a wine that you're going to like each year for the same reasons. All right. There's another reason, and I don't want to make this sound too nefarious, but um, lots, lots of wine, wineries, including wineries in, in places like Napa, use sure. grapes from other places it might be Petite Syrah from Clarksburg to give it color and bulk. Sure. And frankly, Petite Syrah from Clarksburg is pretty good, but they just don't like the story of that grape being in their wine. Right. So sometimes sometimes they don't tell you on purpose because yeah. they don't think it's going to make the wine sound so good. Let's put it this way. The most expensive grapes to buy in California are Cabernet and Chardonnay uh, for reds and whites. And if you start going down in price— there's almost a certainty that at some point you're going to get into a category of wines where they put just exactly 75% of that grape because they sure. really need to add some other stuff in to be able to make the price point. Yeah, And, you know, there is a thing in some of the wineries, and I remember um, <clears throat> being at one of the wineries in Napa. Uh, it was named my will. Actually, they, it, was, it, was, they were, it was terrific. Um, but they had, it was about, 92 or 93% Cabernet. Right. And they had like right. 2% Petit Verdot and yep. 2% right. Merlot. And, and you ask yourself, why 1% or 2%? But it really does make a difference. Oh, yeah. Think about 1% oh, yeah, yeah. of lemon juice in, in water. In anything. Right. In anything. And so when you have a very different grape or that does something yep. different. And so th- and that is, in a way, so in a way, Scott, you nailed it. It's not so much the winemaker's secret as it is the winemaker's skill. But he has another question here hidden in this one that I think is pretty interesting, which is he says, is this why wines made from the same vineyard by different winemakers taste so different? And it's only one of the reasons. The other reasons would be one winemaker might want to pick the fruit earlier to mm-hmm. make a fresher, livelier wine. The other one would want to pick it later and make a heavier, richer wine. One might want to age it a long time in oak right. to add complexity to it. The other one's looking for a fresher, livelier style, less oak. All of these things come into play. So, yeah, that old idea that you can taste a wine and immediately detect which vineyard it comes from, you and I both know that there are enough different tricks that winemakers, I don't even want to call them tricks, let's call them techniques, yeah. different yeah. techniques winemakers use that frequently confuse people when they're trying to do that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it is, and, and it isn't, it isn't the, once again, it's not, it's not nefarious. They're not doing this to, to, to mess with you. It's just really what they no, do. In fact, many of them are doing it so that the pe- person who liked last year's vintage will like the coming vintage because they're trying to be consistent in quality. Yeah. They're trying to live up to the promise they've made to the people who drink their wine. Right. Uh, so the last thing, Scott, you might, uh, when you go to a wine shop or even a, a decent supermarket, you know, look at some of the slightly more expensive wines and, and look on the back label, and you might actually see that they've got the full makeup right. on them too. Yep, so. yep. All right. Our next question comes from Elaine Peterson and El Segundo. Uh-huh. A couple okay. weeks ago, you guys said wineries love it when their wines get served in restaurants by the glass. Why? That's a really good question. Yeah, and, and the answer actually, it's sort of funny because there's a yes and a no to this because they love it because do you have any idea how much wine 
a restaurant sells by the glass. I mean, you can go through a lot of Chardonnay in a month at a restaurant. Right. So if your wine is being sold by the glass, your sales are going to go up for that month just because of a few restaurants. I mean, it's not uncommon for a restaurant to serve 30 to 50 cases of wine in a month of a popular wine by the glass. So that's why wineries love it. Why they may not love it is because sometimes the restaurant pourer is the house Chardonnay, mm. and they don't even tell you which winery it's from. So you're yeah. selling a lot of wine, but they're not giving you full credit for mm. it. So that's that's one that they, they aren't so excited but, but about. But fundamentally they do for that. There's also another reason of simply that they think it, it's good for their image. You know, I uh, we've talked about this in the past. I help restaurants on occasion put in, put in their wine lists. And when I'm dealing with wineries, so often they'll give us a very good price if we will pour it by the glass. Right, right. And, and and of course, if they're if they are pouring it and they are using your name, the other the other side of that is, you know, if your goal is to get exposure, if your goal is to have more consumers taste your wine and fall in love with it, then having a restaurant port by they're basically serving as a second tasting room for you at that point, and that's a pretty great deal for a winery. Right, that's that's a very good point. And actually, the other part of it too is is that often the staff knows the wines by the glass. Not the other wines. Right. So then right. The, the staff can actually recommend them, too. So yep. that's a very good yep. thing. All right. Gosh, we will... You know, I'm sorry, Rick, but I think we actually answered that question. <laughs> yeah. Well, so don't worry. We have other things that we will mangle. We will... <laughs> We're going to mangle some more questions a bit later on in the show, but uh, we are moving on from our email bag for the moment because we've got some really horrible wine writing oh, coming boy. right up. I can hardly wait. listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Oh boy, it means it's time to giggle. And who are we giggling at? Some really horrible wine writing. All right. <laughs> yeah, I got one for you here. Okay, just, just add all this stuff up together and see what it tells you. Bold, luscious, juicy, and layered with notes of raspberry, cherry, rhubarb, strawberry, cranberry, red fruit, raisin, bubble glum, <laughs> green bean, dried herbs, mushrooms, and cedar. <laughs> Warm and rich, yet beautifully balanced by racy, lemon, lemony, natural acidity. All right, so there's so many things in here that simply scare me, let alone this crazy list. Well, I think it's somebody somebody put a bunch of words in a piñata and whacked it with it a does, it, whacked you know, it with a baseball bat it, and this is what came out. It kind of feels like, you know, those like random wine description <laughs> generators. You know, yeah, but they used 3 of them in a row. I like so it's got it's got Rhubarb, strawberry, cranberry, and then red fruit. And so then raspberry, red fruit. cherry, rhubarb. That's like every red fruit there is. Plus red fruit. And plus red fruit. And then yes. raisin. Must and be, then bubble gum. Must be red bubble gum. And green beans. And green beans. And then a racy, natural, lemony, yeah. natural acidity. But this sounds like a red. It so is. A lemony acidity. Yeah. Okay. So what do you got? All right. See if you can top that one, right? Well, I'm not sure that I can, but there is one fun part. Um, Translucent dark garnet in glass. Okay, let's just say that every wine is translucent dark garnet. <laughs> yes. There's no need to say it's, this. But and, okay. And, and, right. Good. Thank oh, you very right. much. Uh, light, spicy zinberry, raisins, and mocha on the nose. Ripe berry fruit, dark berry, and spice on the palate. Pairs well with pasta. All right, so there's there's so many things that are funny about this, but I got to start with the fact that there's nothing in the world called named zinberry. 
Zinberry. It does not exist. There's no, not that's a right. Zinberry. No, but it, this wine has it in spades. Yeah. Um, I did actually, because I looked it up, I tried to see if there somebody else used it, and there's apparently there was a winery in Maryland that blends Zinfandel and blueberry juice together. And that's how they get they, Zinberry. They get Zinberry. Well, that's what they so, mean so Maybe here, that's clearly. what this person I, What means. I like is it pairs really well with pasta. Yes. Well, you know, we because have- Because do they mean pasta marinara? Do they mean- Fettuccine Alfredo? Do they mean lasagna? Do they mean ravioli filled with gorgonzola? I mean, pasta is like saying it pairs well with an empty plate depending on what you put on top of it. Well, that that too. But remember, we've we've um, we've also uh, we've had the the survey. The, yes. the, the Harvard if label guy. If you want to sell your wine cheap, don't, yeah, nobody actually buys it. They don't That's like. That's right. Like they don't pasta. like the word pasta on the yeah. back label. But I also like ripe berry fruit, dark berry. Isn't ripe berry? The, anyways, all right. Yes. Uh, that'll do it for uh, some horrible wine writing. Um, we're going to zinberry our way out of here, and we'll be back in the <laughs> second half of the show. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and if you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. There you All go. We'll be right back with some Hungarian history. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Oh, our trumpet boys. Uh, they're perfect for our history moments this That's week. Right. They are just, royal and historic. Just back from their European tour of three days between shows. Yeah, That's right. They're good. They're yep. good. They, they don't miss a beat. All right. So, Paul, I understand you were in Hungary. You must, That's have, right. some, you I, must have some Hungarian history. I got a cool Hungarian story for you here, which is you, you remember earlier in the show we were talking about the, those dried berries that yeah, they yeah. picked at the end. Well, they make a wine. It's not even a wine because it doesn't really ferment. But they, they take those berries and they store them overnight in these 100-kilo buckets. The next morning they go in and they collect only the free-run juice out of those berries that came out during the night. And it's, it's minuscule. I mean, it literally is little drops and little spoonfuls of this stuff. They put it in a bottle and they call it Essencia. It is um, about 35% sugar. It is like drinking honey, except that it's quite got quite high acidity as well. Um, and initially, uh, this stuff was reserved exclusively for the consumption of the Austro-Hungarian emperor. And every winery now that makes an Asu wine at some point or another collects a little of this stuff and bottles it up. It's fabulously expensive. I saw a bottle for sale the other day in a wine shop, $600 for a 187. Wow. So that's a, that's a split. That's, that's one a, of those little... Right. That's, in essence, a quarter bottle. That's a quarter of a bottle. Right. That's one of those little hand-sized bottles they give so you on the airplane. Four times six. Wow, that's not a cheap bottle of wine, that's is that? That's an expensive <laughs> bottle of wine. And here's the amazing part, because I was traveling with these master sommeliers. I spent a week in Hungary, and I got to taste it five times. Wow. So you can just call me emperor from now on. Emperor. Emperor, emperor Paul. Paul. Yeah. Well, I am, I am Peasant Rick here. <laughs> I have Speak, the, peasant Rick. I have the story of the wine called Bullsbug, or Igri Bakver, as yeah. they say in Hungary. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of one of the wines that, that no, it's known, in, and it has, it's a great legend. Um, and the story isn't, the it real is. story isn't bad either, actually. Right. But the legend goes back, and, and the real story goes back to the Ottoman invasion by Suleiman the Magnificent. 
Yes. His description, actually. Yes. Uh, well, but don't forget that the, that the, uh, Suleiman and the, the Muslims invaded all the way to Vienna a couple of times in the 15, 16, 1700s. Yeah, so. and actually all across Western or, or yeah. Europe, he was called that. Uh, and this was, in 1552, he was not part of this, but it was the siege of Egger Castle. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. was a strategic point on the road. It was high up, and it was a big deal. And legend has two theories. One of the theories is that to motivate, support this outmanned and outgun Hungarian group of soldiers. Soldiers, they were served the best food that was there in the town, lots of red wine with a bit of bull's blood mixed in to make them Arg. tough. Arg. Did they talk like pirates? They did. Well, bull's blood will make you do that, even though they didn't know pirates. <laughs> um, the better one is during the siege, the town, it's, it's somewhat similar. Outmount, outgun, and the townspeople opened their wine cellars and they drank lots of red wine. Because in Hungary, Every town underneath is riddled with cellars because everybody made wine. So it's that's not hard to believe. Right. So 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 these guys are drinking wine and it spilled over their beards and under their armor and it colored them red. And as they continued fighting the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, the uh, the the Turks thought that they were this was bull. They were told it was bull's blood and gave them oh my superpowers and you know, yeah. made them strong and fierce. It's always strong, strong like bull, strong and fierce like bull. Yes, excellent. And the Turks, uh, they were scared, and they, they lit out of there. As cool. a result, the siege was broken. The wow. real story is actually a little more complicated. The Ottomans really were vastly, uh, had really did vastly outnumber the Hungarians. Yeah. And I looked at some historic records about what they had, which is kind of frightening stuff. They had 16 large siege cannons. They actually shot giant cannonballs. Right. They had 150 medium and smaller cannons and, and a fleet of 2,000 camels. And the camels are really useful because they've supplied both wood and ammunition, and they were the really the supply lines. So instead of horses, they, the horses were to fight on, and the camels, camels were, were the, the supply group, the, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, and cool. And the, the, um, the Hungarians had like six large cannons, and a, a, a few smaller cannons, and 300 what was we call trench guns. They were some version of those giant blunderbusses, right. semi-shotguns. Accurate which, to about seven feet. Yeah, which is not a whole lot for <laughs> repelling a siege of... of, of right. Um, but they, they hung on and, and they withstood these major assaults. And by one historic record, modern historic record, they found almost 12,000 cannonballs in the city. Oh, man. Which doesn't count all the balls that landed against the... Um, the walls. The walls. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, bull's blood aside, um, the, there there was there was uh, it was ferment so to speak uh, with an e uh, <laughs> among the Ottomans. The leaders were fighting with each other and disagreeing, and and basically each wanted to do it their own way. Yeah, they ran out of gunpowder and cannonballs twice, which means and cannonballs were carved pieces of stone and marble back then, so they weren't Excellent. filled with explosives. They had to go back get some more and carve so, them. So in fact, the the Turks lost their marbles. They twice. lost their marbles twice. Yes. <laughs> um, and and then also there was uh, you know they were running out of rations camels besides and it was starting to get cold and rainy and they, they nobody likes to fight in the rain they gave up yeah. after thirty nine days they gave up uh, wow. so um, that that's that's sort of and that, to celebrate and to celebrate everyone in Eger drank Egeribakfer. There you go. I think so. By the way, Egri is almost certainly the adjective form of Eger. See, the town was Eger. Egri means coming from Eger. Ah, it's the Hungarian thing. Ah. And, I'm well, guessing, but yeah. I'm thinking. I'm well, right. and one of the kind of cool things is now is that one of the traditions of that region. Um, I'm told, since I don't really know. Yes, because you haven't been to Hungary, uh, have you? Ray? There you go, rubbing it in, aren't you? Aren't you? <laughs> but is in uh, in often when doing a toast, uh, the proprietor of a, a of a tavern or the the guy at the head of the table would spill some on the ground as a tribute to the dead. 
Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, I want to come go back a little bit to uh, to Zinberry. To well, Zinberry. Not- uh, yes, that's if you're. That's really only if you're visiting places like Middle Earth or Candy Crush Dream or Oz or something. But <laughs> seriously, when you visit a, a, a region that that just it seems sort of you know far away and you don't know much about it, which you do, although you often do it for work, so you've got a little bit of guidance, but you do yeah. it enough to know what what would you tell people? What are a couple of guidelines that they might use to on their travels? You mean in terms of traveling or in terms of tasting the wines? Well, either and both. I mean, let's, we're, we're, since this is a wine show, we're going to assume it's a wine trip, but what are okay. some of the things that they should know? Well, first of all, I think you'd always want to look for the Zinberry. <laughs> of course. You'd be crazy <laughs> not to. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little complicated in many ways because you're tasting wines and sometimes your hosts will even explain to you, look, put this wine in the context of if you've tasted a lot of this, then it, this is sort of similar to that. But, of course, the, the fun part of visiting another region is to taste something you've never tasted before. Right, right. So you kind of need to go with an open mind and say, okay, I like, I like the idea of going there and saying, give me your best shot. Right. Give me what you're proudest of. Don't give me the wine you're making that tastes like everybody else. Give me the wine that you think is really unique to your region. And ideally, give it to me with some food that you think is unique to your region. And let's see how it works for you the the way it's the way God intended the way it grew up, <laughs> yeah. and then from there we can explore. Okay, you know we're in Hungary, a thousand miles from the sea. If you want to tell me it's great with calamari, I'll take your word on that. But what do you serve it? Yeah, with? that's actually really good advice, and because there is a tendency of of Americans and people who are you know serving Americans right. to try to sort of give them something American, right. And right. and you know what the heck if you don't like the local stuff then you can go back and drink right you the can have American, a McCafe. Like, cafe yes and, you can and, have a Mc cafe yeah 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 that's that's very good yeah. advice yeah okay well you are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul and since we have just given some good advice we thought we'd answer some more questions go back into our mailbag <laughs> where give we some bad advice give our usual bad advice <laughs> and by the way if you'd like to ask us a question we will give you credit or not as you know because we will probably mangle your name. Uh, you go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And by the way, if you do ask us a question and we do mangle your name, nobody will recognize you, so you're safe. You're safe. Yeah, that's right. All right, so this one comes from, this is one of our loyal listeners, so she dives in more than once. You know, our yes. Fresno enclave is back. This is from Katie Madden, and oh, she great. says, We have a bunch of friends who like wine, but they're like us. We don't really know much about it except for what we like. Right. We want to give some wine as gifts for the holidays. Do you have suggestions about what to give just regular people? Ooh, so regular people who like wine yes, but don't know a lot about it. Yes, I think she's asking about wine you know, gifts. Right. One of the things that uh, f- my my a friend of my wife's father, so my father-in-law, gave my wife and me for our wedding as a wedding gift was a mixed case of, obviously 12, different wines from around the world for us to just sort of enjoy. It was a wonderful gift because it really allowed us to try all sorts of things we hadn't tried before. It doesn't have to be 12, could be six, could even be three. But the idea of instead of trying to pick one perfect bottle, you kind of hedge your bets there. You could give Chardonnay from three different places in the world. You could give a red, a white, and a rosé. But you could get, you know, just let people explore. You know, we're talking about exploring new wine regions. I love the idea of letting people give them something that encourages them to explore. Yeah, I like that too. And I have a, of a slightly different 
different uh, twist on that, but it's kind of the same thing. I think, you know, it's, it's especially if you're giving a wine gift rather than one expensive bottle, you know, give them at least two because it just, you know, it seems more fun, you know? Yes. Um, and then, yes. And besides, I, if, if we do that to you, then there's something for Deborah to drink. Yes. Well, it's a little bit of the second bottle. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, but I, I think you give them. It's kind of the way you build a restaurant list in a way is you give them something familiar. Right. And then you give them something that they've never heard of. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, so that, and that's always Just a fun see thing. how far they'll go, as yeah. it were. And yeah. I always, I, I say this a lot, and I know uh, we will say this again in our Christmas show. I always say that it, when in doubt and you want to give a red, give them Cabernet because it just looks like you're trying hard. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, you know, it's just a, yeah. the king of reds. It, it, it looks like you went out there and you're, you're yeah. giving them heck. Yeah. And by the way, Katie, if you're thinking about us, I, I do like Cabernet. So, bubbly for yeah, Rick. I'm bubbly. Bubbly. Yeah. bubbly one. That's, That's all always right. a good gift <laughs> in our right. house. All right. This next is from Stephen in San Rafael. Uh, we were wine tasting, and one place said their Zinfandel was a field blend. What is that? Well, it's a blend of blueberries and Zinfandel. Zin- yes. <laughs> Zinberry. It's, yes, it's, and it's the Zinfield and Candy Crush uh, where they all um, – uh, no, it's no. actually – this is a great question because it, it is actually a very complicated answer for the Zinfandel world. Well, it's a it, but it, it's it's a it's a great sense of how people used to grow yes, grapes. Yes, which is they'd plant almost anything in the same field. Now these days we tend to plant block of Cabernet where Cabernet is going to get ripe perfectly next to it, a little Merlot because there's a little more clay in the soil and Merlot likes. In the old days, particularly the old farmers, they used to say, "Well, I like Zinfandel, but I want a little Grenache in there and maybe a little Green Alino, and you know, wouldn't hurt just to have a little Pinot Grigio over there on the side." And then when it came time to pick, they just picked the whole vineyard and blend it all together that's a field blend yeah and what they would do is they would plant they would plant all of the grapes that seem to go together sure so you you know you see this a lot and there's things like alicante boucher and Cinso and grapes that you don't see wines normally made out of because they think of them as blending right um, the reason why it's a little bit of a complicated question is because to go back to Scott's original question about the wine needs to be 75% yep. something. Yep. Some of the old Zin vineyards have had some issues with labeling, the labeling authorities, because they can't they prove they that can't it's 75%. Prove. Right. Yeah. They don't, some places they don't even know. Right. And what going back to there. that same conversation about Scott, one of my favorite red wines in California is from Ridge Vineyards that I mentioned before, and it's their Geyserville. And it is just labeled. Geyserville. It's not called Zinfandel because it's not quite 75% Zinfandel, and it's a field blend. Yeah. They have a vineyard up there. It produces fabulous wine. It's it's not. It's $20, $25 a bottle. Delicious wine. It's a field blend. It's a perfect example of how it works if you've got a good field blend. Yeah, and Ridge is one of the great wineries that does stuff like this, and I was I was at some event where they were they had mapped out one of their um, their Zin, their fields as much as they could figure as out. As much as they could figure out. And it was really fun because there was like a half a row of one thing yeah, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. three vines of something yeah. else. And this is how the, the field had yeah. uh, evolved. And then you ask the winemaker, so what's in the wine? And he's going to say... That's why they call it. They call it Geyserville. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But, Pretty great stuff. But Stephen, actually, so for me, I think it's always just a fun thing. You know, I think one of the great things about good Zinfandel is there's sometimes a little wildness to it. You know, it mm-hmm. just feels like there's flavors racing around. And one of the reasons is because you have all these different grapes. And so, so uh, you know, it, on the things that, I mean, there's so many things, good thing, bad thing about wine. But I think when somebody ever says field blend, I, I say that's a little bit adventurous and give it a shot. Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's Absolutely. A good one. All right. Yep. 
This next one comes from Cody Drabble in Sacramento. I need to say Cody is uh, one of the folks here at Capital Public Radio. Oh, good. But it's a good question. Is uh, she the one who runs down the hall screaming when she sees us no, in the studio? No, Cody's, Cody's a guy. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's a he. It's a he, but is, he runs but down he, the hall screaming. He runs down the yes. hall screaming. And okay. actually, uh, I need, need to say this about uh, it's a cool story is Drabble, the last name Drabble. There's a comic strip named Drabble. Uh-huh. And okay. uh, it's actually named after his family, his dad. The the writer of the comic strip was just looking for a funny name. Yeah. And he ran across this in a phone book and, and called wow. them and said, can we use can your we name? Can we use your name? So Cody has yeah. a thick skin, apparently. Uh, <laughs> plus, he works with me, so he clearly has a thick skin. Um, and he says, how long can you leave a bottle open during the evening? Is there a point you should put a cork in it? Which is what people say about us a lot, actually. Yes. Um, and then, how many days does a bottle last if you've corked it? And does the kind of wine does the kind of wine matter for both of those questions? So, do we have how much more do we have on the show? Do we have an hour and a half? We, I know huh? we got about uh, we got about eight or nine minutes. Because <laughs> it's a great question, yeah. and there are so many different variables. First of all, if you open the wine and it tastes good, you can leave the cork out of it. There's only one reason to put a cork back on top of a bottle if you're drinking the wine right then, and that is as you know, during harvest at the wineries, they'll do this, fruit flies. Right. You get fruit flies in the wine, and fruit flies instantaneously carry little acetobacteria that turn the wine into vinegar. And it doesn't turn immediately, but even one fruit fly in a glass of wine will make it smell bad. Plus, you know, you got a little fly floating around in your glass. It's just not fun. Right. Well, it depends on whether he's doing the backstroke or the that's Australian true. crawl. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in an Australian crawl, that's of course, would be in Shiraz. That's, an, that's the old joke. That's uh, what's the fly doing in my glass? <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. So we answered the first one is you don't need to cork it immediately. The next question is, how long will it last if you do cork it and leave it a day or well, two? Well, can I go to the, the just a question, uh, to back part of this the, about not putting a cork in it? Yes. That's a really fun thing if you somehow manage to drink your wine slowly. Because a wine really will evolve through the yes. evening. I always tell yeah, the yeah. story about uh, waiting for some friends. We were in a restaurant and, and we were... Actually, ne- and what it does is the the later in the evening, the smarter you sound. It's, well, that's true, too. That's how that's, it evolves. Uh, yes. <laughs> the wine evolves. Well, that's if <laughs> only if the person, people you're with are drinking a lot. Uh, but we were killing time. Well, it doesn't time. matter. As long as you think you sound smarter, you're good to go. Yeah. But we were... Actually, was, we were waiting for a couple of friends, and there's a couple of us there. And so we were nursing a bottle that we really liked, and we were nursing yeah. it because we wanted them to taste it right and so we were and they they got stuck in traffic and it was literally they were like four hours late wow so we didn't nurse it for the full four hours but we did for maybe three right and uh we're talking and we're eating and tasting other things too but and the wine changed so much yep so then when they got there there was enough of us we thought well let's get another bottle of this and And it was so different it was different it was and that's a really fun thing to do so let that bottle stay open especially on a meal i hope you said to them Oh, this bottle isn't nearly as good. <laughs> oh, of course they did. You clearly and, ruined it for and us. I said, and by the way, since we drank the first one, you guys are paying for this. <laughs> well, the other question is how long after you open a bottle, right. put the cork back in at the end of the evening, how long will it last? A younger wine, two, three days, you'll start to notice it will begin to taste a little tired, a little, you know, how an apple turns brown after you slice it open. The wine slowly does that. So that'll happen. Does it depend on the kind of wine? Absolutely. Yeah. For example, a, a dessert wine like a Madeira, mm. that's been in a barrel for 30 years. It's already 
everything that's happened to that wine, that could happen to the wine, has already happened to that yeah, wine. Yeah, you any can... any wine with a lot of sugar in it, you know, any of the dessert wines, yeah. and I'm decent, you know, especially like an old Riesling that's got acid and sugar, that'll just sit around for Now, leave a bubble, bottle bubbly Ugh. open yeah. for two days, no, yeah. and by the second day, it's she no got no bubble. You don't have to worry about recorking. You can't really recork a bubble right. that, bubbly that, that well, right. but that's something. Uh, I tell this story a lot on the show, but I'll tell it again, you know, that I've sort of done this little experiment with whites and reds mm-hmm. uh, to see which, um, which works best, whether it's... Which one makes you sound smarter? Um, yes. Well, it's it depends. The higher alcohol wines make me sound smarter than <laughs> other people drink them. Uh, but, uh, dear Lord, it's scotch, I think, is what they need. <laughs> just, just to, just to get me halfway there. That's right. But... Uh, and, you know, so it's in the fridge, out of the fridge, with a cork or right. with, with the little thing you pump the air yeah, out, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. And what I found is in the fridge overnight for both red and white. Yep. And But we found, and I've done this a, a couple of times for a couple different stories just to make sure I agree with this and I still do, is that the cork on the whites, not pumping the air out, seemed to keep the whites fresher. Uh, uh-huh. And and the pumping the air out on the red Absolutely, much better. The the sometimes you get one day on the on the red yeah. with the cork. Yeah. But um, I'm surprised you have wine left over when you open one. Right? Well, I did. I have to open a whole lot to get to that point. <laughs> it, it generally takes. Uh, and he keeps drinking. He keeps sounding smart. This is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We encourage people to to give that a try. Um, Experiment a little, but different wines. One thing that will help wine stay lively in the glass is is uh, acidity. So brighter style wines will last longer in open, whereas um, the sweet wines will always last. Um, and then there are wines that you open and you think they taste really good right now, or even, gee, this is tasting a little tired. Don't save that one for the next day. Put it under the sink and cook with it a couple days from now. Uh, we got a little time left for a uh, food and wine pairing, which is coming up in a minute. And you Excellent. might wanna, you might be able to guess what it is. But for the moment, we are zipping up the mailbag and moving on. And one more reminder, you can go to rickandpaulwine.com and ask us a question. We'll mangle it like everybody else. Everything else. Coming right up, <laughs> food and wine pairing. Stay with us. Listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Uh, it's a time for a food and wine pairing, and no surprise, goulash is our target. Excellent. So, I first I want to tell you uh, what I my suggestion. Okay. Bull's blood. Bull's blood. Yeah. yeah. Good. Okay. That's it. Yeah. But the question is, what kind of goulash? Because yeah. Well, remember. So there we go. So actually, this is really more of what did you drink? This is really kind of tell okay. us about this. Well, because we were there in Hungary on a trip to to really have them show us these dry white wines called Furment. Mm-hmm. And we drank this, again, a crisp white wine with a beef consomme full of chunks of beef, potatoes, and carrots. And because the wine had delicious acidity and everything, it was great with that. Um, we really enjoyed it. And I'd do that again in a heartbeat. So if you're in Hungary and you're having goulash soup, which is what they do, I recommend the dry ferment wines of Hungary. Now, if you're drinking a big, rich, paprika-laden stew in America, uh, I think it might also work. But I think there's a lot of other things you could try as well. We should explain for folks who don't actually make goulash, which is that, so it's this big hearty beef stew and paprika is the star. 
in in this country. In this country. In Hungary, it, where goulash comes so from. So did you not get paprika? Was that not even part of it? Um, a tiny little dusting in the soup, but it was not in any way dominated by the paprika. Yeah. So because for here, for the goulash, which is a really is a delicious way of attacking a stew because I happen to like paprika. Yes. And I actually, I cheat and use smoked paprika, which is right. you know, makes it even smokier. Is and the, the paprika in Hungary, by the way, is quite spicy. It's oh. not your... They, they, in fact, sell two kinds. They, tell the, they sell the sweet and the spicy. And yeah. the spicy will light you up. Yeah. So, but for what we do, there's, there's such an earthiness to it that, right. you know, I think, you know, Syrahs are great. And yep. any of those, you know, yeah, possibly, a, well, I don't know, maybe, not, maybe too light. I think you need a hard, I was going to say uh, like a burgundy, but um, I think that the, the wine's too light. The earthiness in the Pinot would work. So let but, me give you one other suggestion, which is particularly if you're using the spicy paprika from Hungary, so that this is not only a sweet, rich maybe? soup. But really, really spicy, lively, almost hot. Um, you know what works really well is a dry ferment from Hungary because it's light, it's clean, it's refreshing, and it it's almost like drinking beer with a spicy meal, oh. and it works really See, nicely. And I was going to wonder about the the, the, the sweeter Sakai because the sweetness and the spice is a pretty good no, way to go no, with spice. I just drink that wine on its own. Uh, well, is oh, that man, too? But that so is good. actually, you know, it, it is kind of one of the little hints about spicy food is yep. um, is that a, a sweeter, not a super sweet wine, but a wine with sweetness in it. Yep. Um, it, it actually, it it coats your tongue. Sweet bubbles. And then the other yeah. thing about a, sort of a dry white wine is you're going to serve it cold so that it has that additional benefit. If you're getting a lot of heat in your mouth, the cold feels good anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. Since we have almost a minute, were there other foods in Hungary that you ate that we get differently here? Um, n- no, but what we did taste a lot of that I liked very much is their home-cured sausages. You know, they mm-hmm. had things that we would think of as sort of like salami or other things. Those were delicious. Ham was delicious. A lot of pork. Um, some delicious cheeses. So it was, it was in many cases, fairly rustic food uh, in many of the farmhouses and things, but absolutely delicious. Yeah, well, now you're making me hungry. You know, Paul, we got to not do the show just before lunch. This, uh, <laughs> Are there any Hungarian restaurants you know, near the station? Uh, I, there's a McDonald's just There's a the McCafe. So. All right. <laughs> that is it for another round of Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Pacini. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question that we will mangle on the show, <laughs> go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one or Rick and Paul Wine. Don't forget, look for us on iTunes. And if you've learned anything today, we hope it's that Bull's Blood is a pretty awesome name for a wine. I'm Rick Cushman. You can call me Bull. <laughs> and I'm Paul Wagner, and you can call me Mangle. <laughs> <laughs> and remember the best wines, you drink it with friends. Or with us. Especially us.